There's a story that ecologists used to tell themselves, one many of us non-scientists still tell ourselves. It's an old story, at least as old as ancient Greece, meant to explain why predators, wolves, falcons, sharks, didn't just totally decimate prey populations of deer, pigeons, and smaller fish, and why those animals didn't totally decimate their own food supplies of various plants. As the story goes, they have a natural inclination toward balance, but one being, every time it sticks its clumsy, opposable thumbs where they don't belong, throws everything off kilter, ruining the natural order. And for so long, we thought about wilderness as a place that we just keep our hands off of. But now we- Humanity, with our technologies and our dumb curiosity and our general inclination to reject instinct, is the biggest wild card in nature, because we, so the story assumes, are not of nature. So the best thing we can do to protect the natural order is to get ourselves out of the picture and let the world sort itself out. If we were to put even one more wolf out there, then whatever happens from here on out is going to be tainted by what humans did. In 1910, mathematician, chemist, and statistician Alfred James Lotka was developing a set of equations, which he would later use to model relationships between plants and herbivores. Around the same time, independent of Lotka's work, Vito Volterra, a mathematician and physicist, developed the same set of equations as he started to dip his toes into mathematical biology and predatory fish populations in the Adriatic Sea. The Lotka-Volterra equations, as they came to be known, were eventually used to explain predator-prey relationships, establishing the scientific 20th century version of the balanced narrative told in X's and Y's, functions and parameters. Kim Todd is a senior fellow with the Environmental Leadership Program and professor of nonfiction in the Master of Fine Arts program at the University of Minnesota in Minneapolis. In July of 2017, she published an essay in Orion Magazine called The Island Wolves about a group of wolves and moose living in what at first seemed like a natural laboratory in perfect isolation. In this lab, researchers could study a set of predators and prey who mapped beautifully onto the graphs produced by the Lotka-Volterra equations, which, as Kim writes in the essay, offered graceful waves, one trailing the other, a field mouse sleeping, a fox sleeping after. But in 2010, when DNA testing had become affordable and researchers were able to procure funding to test the wolves, what they learned threw decades of findings into question. Welcome to Bestiary. I'm Meg Sipis, and this is Eric Botts talking with Kim Todd about the island wolves. Tell me about Isle Royale pre-1900s. 
Well, Isle, um, Isle Royal is an island that's in the middle of Lake Superior, so it's very isolated from the um, from the mainland. But it did have a number of large mammals. It had caribou, it had lynx, um, and probably snowshoe hare as well that the lynx were hunting. Um, so it did have some species, but it didn't have the species that it's most famous for these days, which are uh, wolves and moose. And there's no concrete documentation of when the first of either of them arrived, but moose seemed like they started to show up and people seemed to you know, see start of evidence of um, them browsing and, and being present in the early 20th century. And it seems that they started to see presence of wolves in uh, about the 50s. Moose, as it turns out, can swim. In fact, in the YouTube videos I found, they're pretty good at it, and they seem to enjoy it. Of course, there are lots of videos of them swimming in lakes, and a few in which people actually rescue moose who've gone out for a dip and found themselves in precarious situations. But there seems to be an entire YouTube genre of moose swimming around in residential pools. Here's one in which it seems a family and friends have gathered to marvel at the giant bullwinkle paddling around in their in-ground pool. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. He is so smart. I mean, wouldn't you do that if you were him? Oh, oh. those guiding And here's another one where the homeowner has called local authorities to get the moose out of her pool. They all seem to think he's stuck and can't get out himself, but I'm not so sure. The two officers lasso the moose around the antlers and begin pulling it, first up the ramp that goes from the deep to the shallow end, and then up the stairs to get out. And at first, maybe, it really is having trouble getting up the ramp, but by the time they get it to the stairs, this moose seems pretty determined not to leave the water. It's amazing when you think about it. An adult moose can weigh some 1,800 pounds. From hoof to shoulder, they range about five to six and a half feet. Think about that. LeBron James is six foot eight. In front of a fully grown adult male moose, he'd basically be able to look it in the chin. This massive creature populated Isle Royale by swimming to it. Wolves, on the other hand, of each year, when winter storms pound Lake Superior. And it's the ice, or lack thereof, that determines whether or not wolves can cross from the mainland. 15 miles away. With climate change, there were parallel ways that wolves came to Isle Royal. One was that it seems likely that wild wolves just came over themselves, that the lake froze and they must have strolled over some really cold winter. Um, but then at the same time, wolves were being very deliberately targeted throughout the United States. Um, for elimination. Less than a century ago, 
nearly every wolf in the lower 48 had been poisoned, trapped, or shot. And this guy, Lee Smith, who was a newspaper man who lived in Michigan, um, thought that Isle Royale, because it was so isolated, would be a great refuge for wolves. And they wouldn't be having conflict with sheep ranchers and all kinds of things that they were having on the mainland. Conflict is a bit of an understatement. Regular listeners might remember from our coyote series some brutal accounts of the ways in which ranchers would torture and kill coyotes, from stoning them to death to soaking them in kerosene and lighting them on fire to sawing off their lower jaws and releasing them into the wild. The situation wasn't much better for wolves. In fact, you could argue that it was worse since, unlike coyotes, who at least have evolutionary strategies for surviving persecution, wolves were nearly wiped out. During their darkest hour, wolves persisted only in remote forests near Lake Superior. And during a cold winter in 1929... So, this guy, Lee Smits, a newspaper man and executive at ABC, had been advocating for wolves and had been trying to lift the bounty on timber wolves in Michigan to no avail. The demonization of wolves was thorough and deep, and any effort to protect them from the wrath of hunters and ranchers was bound to meet intense resistance. Eventually, Smiths decides the best way to protect the animal is to isolate it from humans. So he launches an effort to turn Isle Royale into a wolf refuge. And so originally he tried to get some hunters to bring him some wolf pups, and that didn't work out. And so then he just went to the zoo and took three wolves from the zoo. Lady, Queenie, and Adolf. And then this one wolf that he had actually um, been sort of raising as a pet along with his dog and took them over to the island and let them go. Which one was he raising himself? Um, Big Jim. Smith had raised Big Jim from a pup alongside his terrier, taking the two out duck hunting until... Before he decided that Big Jim should go be a wild wolf on Isle Royale. The wolves, on the other hand? Well, they weren't wild because they had been in a zoo and and Big Jim had essentially been being kept as a pet. And so they really liked hanging around people. Um... And they were, you know, taking people's laundry down from lines and um, hanging out near the lodge and basically not doing what Smiths wanted wolves to do. And the rangers were growing increasingly annoyed. So they they shot um, Adolf and Queenie, and then they took Lady and they captured her and they took her back to the zoo. And then Big Jim, they just never caught. And I guess he might have just you know, sort of died without reproducing, or he might have been folded into the wild packs, which were building at the same time. Um, People aren't sure what happened with him. So Smith's plan, although noble, was also naive. Nonetheless, those wild packs that had started to populate the island before the Smith's pack fell apart, they had started growing. And in about the late 50s, so about 1958, um, Derwood Allen, this professor at Purdue, um, decided that they were going to study the wolves and their interaction with the moose. And they launched this decades-long study of um, predator and prey interactions with focuses on the wolf and the moose. And even though Smith's wolves didn't make it, life for the other wolves on Isle Royale, the ones that were actually wild... Um, 
was working out pretty well. In their minds, it was unfolding the way that Smiths wanted it to, right? It did seem to be this refuge where the wolves weren't being harassed and where they weren't having a lot of problems with people that they were having on the mainland. Um, and it was a pretty simple system, at least it seemed. Um, there was just the wolves and they were feeding like almost exclusively on moose. So it seemed like this very good natural lab to watch these um, things unfold. We'll be right back after this quick message. At the top of the show, Meg brought up this concept, the balance of nature that's been with us for a long, long time. Sort of, you know, ancient Greeks were talking about, like, like Herodotus, the Greek historian, wondering why um, predators don't just eat all the prey. Um, because, you know, they're hungry and there's their food and, you know, what's, what's stopping them. So Herodotus decides that the only plausible explanation lay with the gods. Without them, animals would naturally glut on their food supplies and quickly turn the world around them into an arid wasteland. But why would the gods care? What reason would they have to intervene and prevent such destruction? Well, the answer, of course, was human prayer and sacrifice. The gods would divinely intervene on our behalf in exchange for our worship and blood, and for the flesh and blood of the animals we ate, which of course we would toss a portion, the best, juiciest portion, into the fire. And this connection to religion, it stuck around for a long time. Particularly like 1600s, 1700s interpretations had the notion that God was stepping in and keeping things in balance, um, and that He was like this wonderful divine manager, and that He's keeping, um, you know, the prey population healthy and the predator population healthy, and that seemed right and good for everybody. Um, and then, you know. Well, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, one U.S. president and a number of his allies saw things differently. Teddy Roosevelt, often seen today as a hero of conservation for having set aside huge swaths of land to be protected from human development, also launched one of the biggest campaigns of direct and intentional human interference in an ecosystem in modern history. If you listened to our mini-series on coyotes, you might remember this. In 1906, President Theodore Roosevelt created the Grand Canyon National Game Preserve, which then created the Forest Service Policy, a predator control program aimed at eliminating predators and increasing the numbers of more desirable prey animals. The success of the program... The effects of that and similar programs are complicated, to say the least. On the one hand, the parks and monuments Roosevelt created obviously benefited the animals in them, most apparently protecting their habitats from human settlement. 
and those benefits extended to predator and prey alike. On the other hand... Um, And then, you know, in the late 19th century, turn into the 20th century, you had people like Roosevelt saying, you know, actually, this is terrible and predatory animals are sort of cruel and immoral and they're having these huge impacts on prey populations. Um, We see these big decreases in deer. um, We see these big decreases in elk and animals that we want to promote. Let's get rid of the predators because... They're evidence of something being wrong in the world. Um, so when Leopold came along... Yeah. Roosevelt and many other conservationists at the time cast predators as merciless slaughterers of desirable animals, as murderers who needed to be punished for their crimes. The concept that there were desirable and undesirable animals stood in direct conflict with the concept of natural balance. Enter Aldo Leopold, the late great conservationist. He builds up this narrative about the Kebab Plateau. And as his version of the story goes, Uh, Before the 1900s, the Kebab deer population was stable, right around 4,000. And then in 1906, Teddy Roosevelt creates the Grand Canyon National Game Preserve, which establishes a predator control program that's basically aimed at exterminating wolves, coyotes, and other predators to boost the populations of what they sort of regarded as desirable animals. So the policy, um, from one perspective, is a rip-roaring success. Deer populations skyrocket, um, but it's also regarded as an ecological disaster. So after decimating the wolves and the deer populations go up, they end up stripping all the foliage in the area and in the uh, late 20s, early 30s, end up suffering from mass starvation. So the story, the, the moral of the story, Uh, in Leopold's telling is it's a story of balance. The notion has been there for a long time and it was sort of, you know, given scientific credibility by people like Leopold who looked and said, um, you know, countering Roosevelt and countering a lot of the conservationists, particularly at the late 19th century, who saw predatory animals as bad and evil and um, cruel and really going after these prey populations um, in a way that seemed like morally unacceptable. Um, He said, no, like the predators, wolves, coyotes, um, raptors are keeping prey populations in balance and we don't want to be overrun by deer. We don't want to be overrun by insects that, you know, birds might eat. Um, everything sort of... So Leopold takes this classically religious notion and puts it in modern scientific terms. There was no divine intervention, just different circumstances, instinctual needs and desires and biological realities keeping each other in check. The only design, the only management, came from nature itself, not from God, and not because of our prayers and sacrifices. The threat to balance was not the animals themselves, but us. 
Leopold's version of the balanced narrative fit so well as a tool for conservation because all of a sudden it was saying like, no, it's not at all good to for us to exterminate all the wolves and the coyotes because they're important. They have this important role in the ecosystem and they're keeping not just themselves healthy, they're keeping the prey populations healthy and they're keeping the plant populations healthy. And it was this very good, positive interpretation that was having wonderful real world effects. And so um, it's an idea I think that's, that's hard to let go of for that reason. And the Lotka-Volterra equations, the ones scientists used to model predator-prey relationships into those perfect graphs, here was elegant scientific proof of Leopold's balanced narrative. And a whole generation of biology textbooks was born. I actually remember very specifically reading about these wolves and the way that these cycles, these predator-prey cycles, represented this balance of nature. Um, I was in a class at the University of Washington, and um, I just remember the lecture about the Isle Royal Wolves, and it seemed, and the, particularly the images that accompanied them, which were very stark and dramatic. The photos and, from uh, Isle Royale owe much of their starkness and drama to the weather and landscape. Beds of snow fill the frames stippled with wolf tracks, bracketed with trees and split by deep black shadows. In the 1997-98 annual report, dedicated to the study's founder, Derwood Allen, who had died in 97, one image seemingly taken at night under strong artificial lighting shows three wolves from the pack that had become dominant on the island at the time, known as the Middle Pack. In the foreground, at the lower left, the alpha female stands, staring out beyond the bottom frame. Next to her, in the middle of the image's lower third, her pup lies prone, looking toward his mother. And behind the pup, just right of center frame, the alpha male walks past, thick, stoic, disinterested. Their shadows jut back to the top left corner of the frame, the image looks like what could be the last in a series of pictures from a family photo shoot in which the father has grown tired of the affair and begun to move on before the mother and child notice. It'd be more than a decade before researchers would come to realize the full importance of the alpha male from that photograph as the wolves' savior and later their downfall as an agent of both stability and war on the island, as the catalyst who would turn almost a century of scientific certainty on its head.
at first, Isle Royale was fitting right in, getting the neat graph that you were supposed to get. And then one of the head scientists on the study, Rolf Peterson, when he joined in the late 60s, the study had been going for 10, 12 years at that point, um, almost immediately those relationships started to break down. And so that was really what he spent his career watching is, well, look, you know, in this particular point, the wolf populations are skyrocketing, but they don't seem to be following a similar trend in the moose populations, um, you know, what's going on here. And so the, the neat, regular, predictable graphs were left behind. After a series of harsh winters, Kim writes, and this is when you'd expect both moose and wolf populations to plummet, but no, quote, wolf numbers soared, going up to 50 in five packs at one point. And the wolves started acting weird. Kim goes on, behavior changed, with wolves chasing moose off cliffs and eating just the organ meat before killing again. Moose numbers plummeted, then wolf numbers plummeted, then wolf numbers rose again. Yeah, and then uh, in in 1981... So um, you're not supposed to have dogs on the island, but um, somebody brought in their pet illegally on a private boat, and the pet was carrying canine parvovirus, and that quickly made its way through the wolf population, and you had several years where there was no pups surviving, um, and it really seemed like the wolf population was in a very bad place as a result of essentially a human action, right? This decision to to bring a dog over. On top of that? The wolves had started to show signs of inbreeding depression. They were less fit um, and they they were just having trouble because of inbreeding and lack of fresh genes. And then we get a savior. Who is old gray guy? Um, the biologist noticed this distinctive wolf was in the island population. And as he aged, his fur started to turn gray. Um, And so they called him old gray guy. But gray guy completely took over the island's middle pack and pushed its territory outward into better hunting grounds, shrinking that of the other two packs and building up a strong bloodline over 1998 and 99. In modern political terms, you could think of him as a dictator, a strong man, a strong wolf, I guess, who governed through sheer dominance, social dominance, violent dominance, and sexual dominance. The sexual dominance becomes especially significant later, but for now, here's a story that shows the fierceness with which he governed the middle pack. In February of 2000, Rolf Peterson and his team flew out over Isle Royale. When he and his team flew out over the island and they saw what in, in the essay comes across like the climax of uh, like a war story. As you put it in, in the essay, this wolf was cowering behind a rock offshore as old gray guy's pack surged into the water, snarling and biting at her. Peterson, talking into his tape recorder, said three times, I think she's dead now. But she kept getting back up. Finally, after making it to shore, only to be attacked again, she seemed definitively gone.
The men flew back to Windigo for body bag and to refuel. When they got back, a male who had been far behind his packmates approached the carcass. And then, as Peterson later wrote excitedly in his report, the lone female raised her head. See the Ecological Studies of the Wolves of Isle Royal, 1999-2000. The next day, both wolves were gone, leaving behind bloody indents in the snow where the female had slept. Several days later, Peterson found the pair. The female was standing up and the male was licking her neck. Every now and then, he'd dig into the snow to imitate caching food, cording, and she'd growl and he'd go back to licking her neck. The scientists dubbed her the Cinderella wolf, but Cinderella doesn't seem right. Maybe the second wolf staged a rescue, but invoking the fairy tale obscures the first wolf's own swimming and fighting and snarling determination to live. There was no fairy godmother or party dress. A better name for her is Ferocious Warrior. The male wolf, he can be Prince Charming. After a while, Grey Guy's dominance, which had at first been a blessing pulling the wolves out of this increasingly septic gene pool, it becomes a curse. For over a decade, Peterson's team had wanted to run DNA tests on the Isle Royale wolves, and when they finally had the funds to do so, what they learned through their whole perception of the island, its wolves, and the models on which they had based all of their assumptions about populations into disarray. So they called him Old Grey Guy. But what they didn't realize until 2010, when they were able to do DNA studies, was that he had come over on an ice bridge, just like the earliest populations of the wolves had. Back in the 90s, after the parvovirus and inbreeding had decimated the island wolves, the single most important way that Grey Guy saved the wolves came from his genetic makeup. And then here comes in this very vigorous wolf who brings in all these fresh genes. So they were just looking at the straight population numbers, not really able to, you know, pick out these specific events from it, one of which was boosting the population. Grey Guy's super genes. And the other, which was decreasing the population. The parvovirus. But... He chooses his sister as his second mate, and then she mates with her son, I believe. Um, there's a lot of inbreeding, and so soon that the population is swamped with old gray guy genes. Which, of course, is a problem because you end up with all these recessive genes that are not so good for evolution, taking over the population, and, and they end up winning a whole lot of Darwin Awards. Yes, that's right. So, you know, you see animals with severe spinal problems, some eye problems, just things which wouldn't um, have a chance to manifest if very close relatives weren't breeding with each other. Um, you know, the, the population was sort of declining and declining and declining as inbreeding was catching up with the wolves. They were just becoming in um, worse and worse health and having fewer pups. 
And then a number of them fell into a pit that was left over from mining. Olive oil had had mining on it for quite a while, and the pit was filled with water, um, and a number of them drowned in there. Some just vanished. And then, so you had this pair of two who was left, and they're both very closely related. Um, and a number of years ago, there was three because they'd had a pup. But even looking at it over the air, from the air, Bruce Titch said. Bruce Titch is another one of the island researchers. That he didn't thought, think it was going to live long, it seemed, um, to have some like skeletal problems. Um, and, and it didn't. So, so as, as of our conversation, there's, there's two wolves there. This conversation took place on December 1st. On December 5, Rolf Peterson published the following report in Science Magazine. It reads like an obituary. The last remaining wolf pair on Michigan's Isle Royale may be gone, leaving behind a lone female who is both the daughter and half-sibling of the unaccounted-for male. Once numbering 50 or more, wolves on the 230-hectare island in Lake Superior kept the moose population there, which has ballooned to more than 1,600, in check. But recent years have brought a host of difficulties. Warming weather has melted the ice bridges that once allowed mainland wolves to come over, and a lack of new pack members has led to inbreeding and illness. Researchers who could not confirm the presence of the two wolves during their annual summer survey have called on the National Park Service to implement a genetic rescue. The service's preferred plan, now under review by the U.S. Department of the Interior, is to bring 20 to 30 new wolves to the island over a five-year period. In addition to Rolf Peterson, you also spoke with his, his wife, Carolyn Peterson. She says something during a talk uh, at a campground on Isle Royale, which is, um, things are much more complicated than we thought. Things are changing all the time. We don't use the word balance anymore. Why not? I think because they just realized that, that you couldn't explain what was happening on Isle Royal by just looking at the wolves and just looking at the moose and their interactions. So that's kind of the promise of like the Locke-Voltaire equation, right? That you can just map the populations against each other over time. And it's not even as simple as changes in weather. You really have to account for chance events. Like, for instance, a man illegally bringing his sick dog to the island and infecting the population with canine parvovirus. You have to account for, you know, strength and dominant personalities. You know, if Ferocious Warrior hadn't fought as hard as she had, if she hadn't had the endurance that she had, if she died that day, well, the population would look completely different. Um, the two remaining wolves on the island 
you know, have her DNA as a result of those personality traits that she has. Um, you know, you can't take humans out of the equation, even though, you know, it wasn't part of all of the drama that was going on the mainland. There was still um, tourists coming. There was still people living on the island. Um, and all of those had an effect. Humans have a strong, persistent tendency to separate ourselves from other animals, to draw a line between the human world and the natural world, such that we end up trying to erase ourselves from the picture of the studies that we conduct. But a fence is no more a division than a river or a mountain range. Our glass and concrete, our bricks and steel, our plastics and fabrics, synthetic or not, they're all natural, all parts of nature. We touch every part of this world, either directly, we exterminate a species, then we reintroduce it, or indirectly, we warm the globe, eating holes in its ozone, filling its oceans with plastic. In all of our grand scientific studies, in which we've worked so hard to understand the natural world, perhaps, as Kim writes, we are just studying ourselves, like Pooh and Piglet, tracking around the clump of larch. If we're trying to chart a system in absence of the human presence, which is ubiquitous and just across the border in some places. I mean, the policing of the border of Yellowstone in terms of what animals can come in and what animals can come out and, you know, what is their protection status once they're on one side or the other of the artificial human drawn line, you know, is, is a case study in and of itself. I think that I was just trying to raise the question of can we divorce ourselves from these natural phenomena that, that we want to study and that we aspire to study in isolation. How do we step back enough to both see ourselves in the picture while not over-inserting ourselves into it? Yeah, or even just the necessity for seeing ourselves in the picture. Beastery was produced by Eric Botts. Eric also does our music and editing. 
You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or whatever app you use to tap into the podcast ether. If you have an idea for an episode, email Eric at eric at bestiarypod.org or hit us up on social media at bestiarypod on Facebook and Twitter. Our website is bestiarypod.org. Special thanks, of course, go out to Kim Todd. Kim was actually a professor of both mine and Eric's years ago when we were both undergrads. We can't thank her enough for her tutelage. You can and should find Kim's essay, The Island Wolves, in Orion Magazine at orionmagazine.org. You can find more of Kim's work, including her excellent book, Sparrow, at kimtodd.net. And you can learn more about the Isle Royale Wolves at isleroyalewolf.org, where you'll find all kinds of cool stuff, including videos and books about the island and wolves and moose, as well as annual reports from the researchers at Isle Royale. We'll talk to you in two weeks. As always, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.